Hey, if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians 14. And by the way, while you're turning there, we have a partners meeting today. I'm really excited about this partners meeting. So if you're a partner or if you just went through the partnership class from 2 to 4 today at the KCAB, that's the Knoxville County Association of Baptists, which is on Morrell in Westland. It's right behind the mall. Um, it looks like a house almost, but it's really big. And that's where we're going to have our partners meeting. I encourage you to be there, even if you have not RSVP'd online. We'd love for you to be at that meeting. We've got some great things we're going to go over. But 1 Corinthians 14, we are going to finish this series today on spiritual gifts, okay? And let it never, ever, ever be said that we avoid hard passages, all right? You can say a lot of things. You cannot say that. Today is a hard passage, and just like last week, I'm going to say it again this week, there's plenty of opportunity, even in a complicated passage, to see and savor the person of Jesus. And we're going to get there. We're going to get there, right? Plenty of opportunity to see how beautiful Jesus is for you and for me. I was telling somebody last week that last week's passage is probably, and if you weren't here or if you're a guest, we, went, we did a pretty deep dive on the spiritual gifts of prophecy and speaking in tongues. And so I said, that is probably one of the top 10 least taught passages from a pulpit. Classrooms, sure. Pulpit, not so much, right? Probably one of the top 10. I would put this one today a little higher on that list, right? It's difficult. It's difficult to understand exactly what's going on. I'll tell you, it's actually more difficult to sit underneath it. To, to actually submit to a teaching like this is difficult. See, this is fully inspired, all of it. Your Bible is 100% inspired by God. It is not equally inspiring, though. There are passages that are more inspiring than others. We all know that. That's why you have favorites. But also there are parts of your Bible that are just hard to sit under, hard to let rule even your heart. This is going to be one of those passages. So listen, I promise, I promise you that I will honor the Word and I will teach as accurately as I possibly can today, but I want you to promise to put your cultural grids down. The preferences that you brought in with you, I want you to put those down. And I encourage you to fact check me on everything I'm about to say. One of the things I love about how Luke described the Berean church in the book of Acts is he said they were a people that were eager to, to, to get Paul's teaching, to hear it, and they were also equally eager to analyze it and weigh it and go back and fact check that guy to make sure that everything he said was legit. And it didn't offend Paul that they did that. And it won't offend me either. Feel free to do the same. And in fact, if you need more than what I'm able to give in this time, we have plenty of position papers that we have written as a church. I've got a position paper that we have with Acts 29. I am more than happy to give you that, and I'm more than happy to sit down and talk with you through this a little bit more past what I'm able to do up here on the pulpit. Just let us know. But my goal in this passage, in this 1 Corinthians passage, is to show Paul's main intent and how it brings clarity to the gospel and how it gives you a freedom to rest, which is difficult in a passage like this. So let's just jump in. 1 Corinthians 14, this is Paul's word to a young church. And we're going to read a little bit and then pause, and then we'll finish it in a moment. But in verse 26, this is what he says. He says, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, 
Let there be only two or at most three in each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each one of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Okay? So, listen, Paul's greatest concern here is order over chaos. That's the mega theme. In fact, that's, that's his point in the whole chapter, really. We've been going over this every week up until this point. He says, let everybody contribute in the way that the Holy Spirit empowers them to contribute. But let's do so in an orderly way that is non-chaotic, right? Because as we've seen, Paul had been getting reports from the Corinthian church in one way, shape, or another that shows that they have been very disordered, that there was a lot of confusion and that there was a lot of chaos in these gatherings. The people weren't being considerate of each other. We've, we saw a couple weeks ago some felt that they were superior. Others kind of walked in the room and felt like they were inferior. We've got this thing going on where people said, hey, I've got a gift and no one's going to put a cap on it. No one's going to put a restriction on my gift. I'm going to do it because the Holy Spirit told me to do it. So they were resisting order. They were resisting any kind of restriction. So what Paul is doing is he's shifting gears. You can see it clearly. He's shifting gears from talking about the spiritual gifts to showing what governance of the spiritual gifts look like. For instance, Paul says if people are coming and they're speaking in tongues, three things. There needs to be a limit, two or three. Right? We're not going to take the whole service and do that. Why is he doing that? Because there's something even more valuable than this beautiful gift, and that is the teaching of the gospel, which is the centerpiece of every gathering, whether it's in a home or in a sanctuary. Right? Two or three at the most. Right? Also, second, line them up. It's goofy if they all do it at the same time. No one knows what's going on. It looks weird. It's chaotic. One at a time. Third, there must be an interpreter. Must be an interpreter. Listen, Paul expects the church to know in advance that somebody was there with the gift of interpretation. He expects that they already know that. No throwing the football unless you already know there's a receiver on the field, right? You don't start that gift hoping that somebody's going to come up with that gift. You know as a church. You know as a missional community that somebody is there with that gift. By the way, this is why you have not seen this gift exercised here on this stage, We've never had this gift of interpretation even present at Legacy Church. Not to my knowledge, not to our team's knowledge. I know some of you have the gift to pray in tongues. You've told me so. Some of you have the gift to interpret dreams. Some of you have a gift to prophesy. But not this one, not interpret. In fact, in my opinion, I think this is probably one of the least utilized gifts in the modern Western church. In the two decades, over two decades, I've led in three different states. I've never once seen this exercise publicly. Not once. Not one single time. It's rare. But this collaboration between tongues and the interpretation of tongues can be assessed. We actually have an ability to look at that and throw a flag if it does not work correctly. And this is how, it, this is how we do that. A translated tongue should look like a prayer. It should sound like a prayer. It should feel like a prayer. It is a God-directed gift. Paul says earlier in the same chapter, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. Okay? God-directed. Prophecy is different. That's church-directed. That is from God through an empowered person who is giving the prophet the prophecy. But this is a God-directed one, and it is unique. 
and it has a unique, beautiful way of building the church. In fact, it builds the church much like a psalm that is read out loud or prayed out loud would. And some of you are greatly encouraged by the psalms. I am. When I read of David pouring his heart out, when I, when I read of the, the, the warrior poets and musicians crying out to the Lord, thanking the Lord, worshiping the Lord, it's encouraging to me. This is a unique gift. But we have an ability to assess it because if an interpretation of a, of, a, of a speaking in tongues comes and it does not sound like it is God-directed, you know right then and there to be cautious. I mean, put the rocks down, right? But to be cautious. I've heard this done once in my life, and it was a miss because it came across as a teaching. The person said, I'm interpreting this tongue. There was a public speaking of tongues. A person walked up there and interpreted, right? And it came across as like a teaching or a prophecy or an encouragement to the church. Listen, I don't think the guy had evil intent. I just think he missed. I just think he didn't understand his, that, that gift. He might not have even been gifted, right? But we miss in our gifts all the time. As a preacher and a teacher, I miss. As an administrator, I miss. Fire did not come down in that moment and consume all of us. It's just a missed gift. Same thing with prophets, by the way. Paul says, if we're going to be orderly about how we do this, line the prophets up too. Let them go in order, no more than two or three at a time. And even their message must be weighed. We even assess and measure and appraise what these prophets say. And how do we do that? Real quickly, very easily. Does it line up with the word? Remember, we talked last week, and you can always go back and listen if you weren't here. We talked last week about how a prophecy that is submitted as a spontaneous gifted word from God, it does not sit with Scripture, it sits underneath Scripture. It has to run concurrently with the main themes and the teachings of doctrine out that, we, that we pull from this Bible. It also must be in line with the gospel, right? It has to do that. So prophecy is bound by Scripture. It is judged and weighed by Scripture. But a second way that we assess it is, is it encouraging? Does it console? Does it lift up? Or is it horrible news? Is it disconcerting? Is it discouraging? Right? Because Paul says there is a purpose in this, and it is to encourage you. Those two things should help you understand whether it was a legitimate prophecy or not. And again, if somebody fails to meet these standards, that doesn't make them a false prophet. It means that they prophesied falsely. And there's a really big difference between those two things, isn't there? I mean, false prophets in the New Testament, those are non-Christian non enemies of the gospel. Jesus would say in Matthew that they are ravenous wolves. Peter would say that they would actually sneak, just scandal into the church. They would secretly bring destruction into the church, and they would deny Jesus, even in their prophecies. This is what we know. And I, listen, I'm convinced this is why many people who possess this gift of prophecy just don't operate in it. I just think you're afraid of failing at it, and I get that. You're afraid that you're going to mess it up. But doing the best you can with the gift that God has given you and falling short, it doesn't make you an evil heretic. It just means you're normal. It means you're normal, possibly being obedient by even trying it. So here's the protocol, super simple. When someone offers you a prophetic encouragement, you need to weigh it. Was it in line with the Bible? Is it in line with the gospel? Was it said in love? Is it encouraging? Listen, it's a powerful gift, friends, as I said last week. In fact, I got a prophecy last week. I can't tell you from who. I didn't talk it over with them. I don't have permission. But I'm saying it's going to take, it took her 20 seconds to give me this prophecy. It lined up with Scripture, and it was incredibly encouraging. In fact, I think it had the power of 50 sermons in my life right there in 20 seconds. It just shut me down. 
And I've been thinking about it all week long. It is a powerful gift, this gift of prophecy. So corporately as a church, Legacy is going to stick to Paul's leadership by structuring our gatherings, and that means calm groups and a gathering like this, to avoid chaos and promote order. Avoid confusion, promote order. So if you feel that God has given you a prophetic word for Legacy Church, bring it to a pastor. Bring it to one of our pastors. In fact, it'd be helpful if you wrote it down, because there's some questions that we're going to ask. One is, who brought this? Right? That's important. Did you walk in off the street, or have we known you for a little bit, a little bit of time, a year or two? Do we know you? How is your character? Is it biblical? Right? Is this a personal prophecy? Like, can you just tell it's meant for one or two people, or is it for everybody? If it is for everybody, is this the time and place for it? Just because you got a prophetic word today doesn't mean it is for today's service right then and there. We're not going to shut everything down and give it. We're going to think about it. We're going to talk about it. We're going to pray about it as a group of pastors. And even then, who is going to convey a prophecy like that? Who's going to be up on stage doing that? And there's a reason for that, and I'll go into it a little bit later on. But last week I said if you have this gift, you are welcome here at Legacy Church, and I meant that. I meant that. If you have the gift of tongues, that is also a valued, beautiful gift. Without an interpreter endorsed by the pastors, however, Paul says that you are to practice that alone between you and the Lord. It's a beautiful gift for your devotion time. That's what that means. What I want you to remember up to this point is the main idea, which is order over chaos. Remember that, order over chaos. And order, as the Corinthians felt, is this restriction to their freedoms. Paul is saying, no more than two or three. Well, what happens if you're number seven? Well, you don't get to go that day. Maybe take a shot at next week, right? Two or three, in order, with these, this framework around it. Why? For the common good and for God's glory. Okay, so I want you to remember that. Let's go ahead and jump back into the passage. I'm going to go back one verse. For God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Verse 34. The women should keep silent in the churches. Uh-oh, uh-oh, y'all heard that? It gets worse. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. It gets worse. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful, shameful, he says, for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. Okay, a lot going on right there. But the only thing anyone in here cares about (laughs) is why exactly is it shameful for a woman to speak in this setting? Isn't that all anyone cares about? You're like, tongues? What tongues? We want to know what to do with this. I love how Paul managed to put three bear traps right in a row, just like that. Doesn't even care who has to preach this later on, does he? Tongues, prophecy, (laughs) women in the church. And listen, this isn't our first treatment of the personhood of women. This is the fifth time in 18 months we've talked about this. The fifth time in 18 months. When we did our series on uh, money, sex, power, we hit it twice. When we walked through the book of Ephesians, hit it once. Walked through the Sermon on the Mount, we hit it once. This is our fifth time. We've talked about the Me Too movement. 
We've talked about sexism in the church, cultural feminism. We've talked about hypocrisy, misogyny, gender roles, gender fluidity, patriarchy, egalitarianism, complementarianism, and legacy's position in all of it. We've been vocal on this for good reason, right? Because we're a church full of missionaries in a city full of questions. Best to answer the questions everybody's asking, right? Primarily, do women generally matter? Genuinely, do they have value in the home and in the church? Because what Paul says here, just reading it at face value, it looks demeaning. It looks like he's drunk, doesn't it? It's like he's having to take some time to just kind of remind women of where their place really is. It looks like a caveman here. But this could not be more timely for us as a church. When I mean church, I mean Big C Church. Could not be more timely. A few weeks ago, and some of you saw this in the news, Pastor John MacArthur, in a moment celebrating 50 faithful years of teaching the Bible. And this was in a conference setting. I don't even know where it was. But in this beautiful moment that was celebrating five decades of ministry. And listen, this is in a season, this is in a generation where men aren't making it five, five decades. Men aren't making it 50 years in the ministry. And so we're celebrating this, but he threw what felt like a jab at Beth Moore, who was a prominent and influential teacher who also happens to be a woman. Okay, and listen, if you don't know these names, don't sweat it. Just know that combined, they are probably two of the more influential people in our church. Their their reach is not to millions. It could be billions if you put them together, right? But in this conference setting, this conference moment, to great applause and to great laughter, MacArthur was asked of his opinion of Beth Moore's ministry. His words, quote unquote, she needs to go home. She needs to go home, among other difficult comments. And this was his main issue, that a woman was teaching men in a way that he felt exhibited authority, okay? Now listen, I'm not gonna return jabs at MacArthur, and I don't think you should either. He is holding on to what he believes the Bible teaches, which is what we're celebrating 50 years of him doing, by the way. I do have high respect for his faithfulness over the last 50 years, but just as we don't agree as a church on where he sits on spiritual gifts, I do not agree with where he sits, and we do not agree as a pastoral team with where he sits on the personhood of woman as it pertains to operation in the church, okay? We don't feel that he is wrong here because culture tells us to either. We're not caving into the pressure of woke society. We believe that he is wrong here because we see that the Bible is leading us in a different direction, right? For instance, Paul is not telling women to just go home. That's not what's happening here. In fact, Paul isn't even making a value statement on women at all. It's important because society's big question here is, does the church think that women are important? They're a healthy church. I mean, absolutely, if they're a healthy church. Let me tell you where we stand as a church, just to remind you. Most of you know this. We believe that women have an equivalent value, worth, and dignity with man in every dimension because she is created in the same image of God as man is. And, and, we also believe that women have a unique and beautiful distinction and role. This is called a complementarian view, okay? We're not going to take the time to do another deep dive on that. You can go back and listen to some of our audio on where we teach. And again, like I said, I can give you any kind of information that you want to read on your own. But I would like to put up just the definition of what a complementarian believes. And not by my definition, but this is Mary Cassian, who she's the author and professor of women's studies at Southern Theological Seminary. She says, a complementarian believes that God created male and female to reflect complementary truths about Jesus. That's the bottom line meaning of the word. 
Complementarians believed that males were designed to shine the spotlight on Christ's relationship to the church in a way that females cannot. And that females were designed to shine the spotlight on the church's relationship to Christ and Christ's relationship to the Father in a way that males cannot. In a way that males cannot. This is what we believe as a church unapologetically. Unapologetically, as does every single network and affiliation that we have as a church. Because it brings the most value to women and it brings the most clarity to the gospel. Listen, not only is Paul not devaluing women in our passage today, he's elevating them in a very similar way that Christ did, which is important because Paul looks like a misogynist here, like he had mommy issues. He's just struggling, it looks like, which is why a lot of Christians, they don't like this passage. They mumble read it whenever they read it, and they kind of hope that nobody in the room picks up on the fact that he looks like a jerk, right? Or we'll make up excuses like, well, I mean, times were different back then. Or women were, in that church, women were real unruly, so he had to kind of come in and act like a donkey a little bit just to get his point across. But that's all he was doing, really. Some will say he's just wrong. I think all of that is just a cop out. I think it's just bad just not doing your homework. Because Paul is a man who is gripped by the gospel. Gripped. He is a man that is altered by the person of Jesus. And Jesus is the most liberating force for women in recorded history, even to this day. I mean, it was scandalous in the days of Jesus for a woman to sit at a rabbi's feet and learn from him. Scandalous. Would have never happened. He caught flack for it. Scandalous for a woman to walk alongside Christ and be a partner in his ministry. That stuff never happened. He would find women and tell them of their value, true value. He would find women in the red light districts and tell them what their value is. And in doing that would shock the world. Christ is the original civil rights revolutionary. The gospel is the original civil rights movement. And it came at a time when women weren't even a footnote. Not even women back then believed that they had the same intrinsic value as men did. I mean, just think about divorce for a minute. All a man needed to do to divorce his wife back then was write it on a post-it note. That's our equivalent. Fired off the printer, which would bring no shame to him, by the way, would bring utter life-changing shame to her. Putting her on the streets where any value that she did have is gone. Now the only value that she'll have is what she could give to a man. There was no woke culture back then. (laughs) There was no aware civil rights. Ultimate power was vested in the man. This is what Christ walked into. This is what the gospel meant. Paul isn't coming to undo all of that. He's not coming to flip that all over. This is why he says this in Galatians. It's like three pages to your right or something like that. Go to Galatians if you can. Galatians 3. I'm just going to read one verse. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. He is not saying that there is no difference between men and women. He's saying that the differences that we build are gone. That what the gospel does when we put on Christ and we wear the gospel, all the walls that we build where men can look at women and say, I'm valuable, you less. Like I have worth, you've got a little less though that we have to let those go. We take those distinctions off when we put the gospel on. Paul is saying that, and this disturbed society back then. 
This was culture-shaking. So with this gospel-shaped equal value, there is still distinction and role. Distinction and role. And hear me when I say this. Distinction does not remove value. To say that there is a difference between you and the person next to you does not mean that one of you is less valuable than the others. Distinction does not remove value. And I have to say it because that's a problem for us. We don't mind being distinct from each other as long as it means that one of us doesn't have to be lower than the other. As soon as one of us has to do this thing we call the S word, submit, then distinction is a problem. Then distinction becomes a problem. That's why I love Ephesians. Ephesians 5, I'll read it to you. It'll be up on the screen. You don't need to turn there. Verse 22, this is Paul, same guy, not subverting what Jesus is teaching. He says this, wives, submit, there's the S word, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything, oh, everything to their husbands. And he goes on, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or such thing that she may be holy and without blemish. And he goes on to teach this beautiful passage, this brilliant passage that shows both genders submitting to each other. It's a double death here, a double deference, a double submission here. So brilliant. I mean, this is why I wear this passage out in wedding ceremonies. I wear it out. If, if you're new to the Bible, or you're, you're starting to understand it a little bit more, it's helpful that you know that marriage is an illustration. God could have thought of any way to join us together and, and, and build nations, but he chose marriage because it is, as boring as it seems to us, it is the most beautiful illustration for the gospel that we have. Because in this, we see this portrait relationship between Jesus, the groom, and the church, the bride, right? We see this. And in this passage, Paul talks about this double submission where men, men reveal Jesus uniquely. Uniquely, there's a distinction. Uniquely by doing what? By submitting, submitting their life to their bride in a sacrificial way for her benefit at his cost. Husbands, that's what we're called to do. That's how we depict the gospel. That's why I say in marriage ceremonies, and I've done some wedding ceremonies in this room, that's why you've heard me say, that's why we've gone over these vows, where men, you were called to preach the gospel with your mouth. You were also called to preach the gospel with your marriage. And husbands, am, am I not right in this when I say that your growth points in your marriage, when you grow as a husband, and you, you get to those sticky places and then you break free, is it not in those places where you find yourself being called to submit a little bit more? to give your life away for your bride a little bit more. Women also have a unique, unique distinction in how they submit. They submit out of a love for their husband, at a cost to their very own freedom, at their cost for his benefit. It's a double death, it's a double submission. And in this, we get to see the gospel again. The church's posture towards Jesus is shown, and then Jesus' relationship with his father is shown. Men can't do that, women can, it's unique. It's a beautiful distinction. It shows the gospel clearly, which is why I say in wedding ceremonies, wives, you are called to preach the gospel with your mouth. You are also called to preach it with your marriage. And again, women, listen, why? is it not true 
that whenever you find yourself in a growth point with your husband and you're growing in your marriage, is it also not in a place of submission? It's hard. He's a moron, right? You're thinking, that guy? I mean, I'll submit whenever he gets his stuff together a little bit, but submit now? I mean, is it not in places of submission? Neither. Neither gender is more valuable than the other. They are equal and they are complementarian. I hope you see this. I hope you see the gospel stance on the personhood of men and women because this is, what, this is what society has as its best. This is what it coughs up to teach you. You have cultural feminism, which will teach women all over the fruited plains that the only way you will get value is to climb over men, to get past men, forget men. You almost have to declare a sort of war on men. You have to resent them, maybe even hate them. And if you submit to them, that's just demeaned. That's a demeaning position. Men, it's not any better for us. A lot of us have grown up with some misogynistic patriarchy where women, they don't have any value. Maybe they do, but like 92%, right? A little bit of value. They're mostly products to be consumed. They're, they're objects to be objectified, right? By the way, this is why you feel threatened when a competent woman walks in the room. This is why you feel like they need to be reminded that there's a place for them and it's not being as competent as they are. That's why you struggle with that. To submit to somebody like that feels like a weakness. It's demeaned. How boring. I mean, can you just, this is the best our society can do without Jesus is build gender roles <laughs> that declare war on the other gender just to find value. I mean, society's best offering for how we look at submission is to demean it. It's so boring, so predictable, so exhausting. And yet without the gospel, this would be me. This would be my marriage. This would be us without the gospel. This is our view at Legacy. Biblical gender roles are meant to draw a jarring picture of the gospel where men and women, equal in all manners, bring their unique distinctions to the table, submitting to each other in order to paint for the world a better picture of Jesus submitting to his father and then Jesus giving his life and submitting his life for his bride and then the bride submitting her life to her beautiful groom. This is our view. Paul is not making a value statement on women here. He's also not making a statement on the competency of women. You get this a lot too. Big question for society. I don't blame society for asking it. Does the church believe that women are even competent? If it's a healthy church, then absolutely it believes in that. Some of the most competent people I know are, are, are women, right? My mom is here. Don't look at her. She'll be really nervous. Don't look at her. But my mom is here. She's one of the most competent women I've ever met. I watched her for years. Success to everything she put her hand to. Helped my dad build a large, successful business while raising two moron kids, right? She's smart, brilliant, witty. She can build. I didn't get any of that from her, right? What I did get from my dad is this ability to marry up above our pay grade, right? He knew what he was doing. So did I. Like father, like son. We're survivors, right? I told Paula the other day, I've said it a hundred times, if we were both not married and going for the same job in a corporate setting, I would have to fight dirty just to, just to keep up, right? I'd have to spread rumors or slash her tires. I'd have to cheat. She's just more competent than I am. There's so many things. She's more competent. 
And it was just like Mario Kart or burping or running a 5K or stuff that just doesn't even matter. She's competent. Currently, I'm the only man on legacy staff. We didn't plan it that way. It's just the way it happened. If you went to a staff meeting, there'd be four of us there. I'm the only guy, right? It's the healthiest staff I've ever been on in 20 years of ministry. I'm forced to stretch the way I think about the church, right? Usually, it's just a room full of men, right, which is odd because we're serving a people that are half women. But when I sit there and I listen to them talk, it stretches me, right? They're brilliant, I mean, I mean, every way that we handle our guests when they walk in, a woman built and executed that. What you see up here on stage, a woman built and executed that, right? The, the fact that the lights are on and bills get paid, a woman is executing that. Right now, there's kids back there being watched. Women are executing that, right? Listen, the only reason we do anything fun at Legacy Church is by a woman. I guarantee you, if you walk away from something and you think to yourself, eh, it was kind of fun, Luke had nothing to do with that. That meant that I was sitting in a staff meeting and I thought, yeah, that sounds good. Write that down. Let's do that. That's how that went down, right? It is Legacy's position that women are not only just equal in value to men, but they are equally as competent as men which begs the question when we get back to our passage, right? So Luke, if Paul believes that women are equal and competent to men, why is he telling them to keep their comments to themselves? Good question. I want you to remember, Paul has been focused on order over chaos this entire chapter. Order over chaos. God has an order to things. He has an order to how a service should go. No more than two or three in order with an interpreter. Order for that. There is an order in how the home is lined up. There's an order in how churches, there's an order in creation. He has an order to everything. And this is his order for the church. Men, with their God-given distinction, are to authoritatively lead in the church and authoritatively teach in the church. Not because men are bigger, better, faster, stronger, but because this is the order of creation itself. Let me tell you what I mean when I say that. This, this will be found in 1 Timothy 2. It's another trouble passage for people. This is Paul speaking to one of his disciples in Timothy who is establishing elders in the church. And he says this, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Okay, Adam was formed first. Right? Not in value, just in order. So what Paul is doing is he's basing his rule for Timothy's church on the created order. On the created order, which means it's going to apply to every church from that point on after creation. So Paul has this beautiful opportunity to speak and to comment and say anything he wants on women in church leadership, and he goes straight to the, straight to the garden, goes right to creation. Even in, even in the way it reads, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Huh, Paul, why? Why, Paul? For Adam was formed first. That is his reasoning behind this. He goes to the garden where a universal distinction and order are made. By the way, man was not deceived first. That might be true, but he doesn't get a high five in this whole thing, this whole Genesis 3 thing. No gold stars by his name. He was actually the first to be passive, the first to abdicate his position. He was the first to be weak. He was the first to openly rebel. Right? Men and women, they're complicit in the fall. I'd say complementary in the fall, maybe. 
So in our text today, 1 Corinthians 14, where we started, Paul is preventing women from formally or functionally operating as authoritative in this moment of dictating what a prophecy should or should not sound like. Judging prophecies, guarding doctrine, judging words, authoritatively extending teachings, that is required of men. Not because men are better, faster, more valuable, more competent, but because they're first. And men, listen to me very clearly. When I say that we have a privilege of being first, we have a dire responsibility of being first because it means we go first. We lay our lives down. We lay our lives down. That's a different sermon. But you need to know this is why we don't have female pastors at Legacy. It's also why we don't have ladies preaching sermons on Sunday. Right? But the big question this provokes is, does that mean that women can't teach? No, not at all. In fact, I think it's a healthy church when women do teach. I think healthy churches should be equipping and empowering women to teach. And and listen, not just other women and toddlers either. It's such a cop-out. So I've heard it said, yeah, sure, I, I believe in women teaching, but only little kids and other women that are younger than them. I mean, there is precedent for women teaching other women, and there's precedent for women teaching kids. But we also see all throughout the Bible women teaching mixed parties, mixed congregations, in public even. Miriam, Deborah, the female prophets in the book of Acts, Priscilla, as she works alongside her husband, mentoring Apollos. We see it. So when it comes to Beth Moore, or Johnny Tata, or Jen Wilkin, or Elise Fitzpatrick, or Elizabeth Elliott, or Kathy Keller, I hope they crush it. I hope they sell out arenas. And I have a dream and a deep prayer that the women here at Legacy Church are empowered and equipped to teach at such a high level that men everywhere are equipped. That we could learn. I've learned a ton from women. You could look at bookshelves in my office. It'll prove it. And that might make some of you uncomfortable, but I want you to just consider this. If we said that women can never teach men, to be honorable, we'd have to extend that to every crack and crevice of this church, which means no more Sunday school, no more 7 to 10 class, where women are teaching, or calm groups where they're actually exhorting, admonishing. No more little testimonies up here on stage. No more worship moments where a woman is speaking out on the mic. We'd have to get rid of that. Have to get rid of women giving announcements because there is teaching in that. I couldn't even recommend books with female authors. That is not Paul's intent here. (laughs) That's not what Paul's doing. That is not what Paul's doing. When Paul says that women are not to teach or have authority over a man in the church or that they should be silent in worship services, it is a certain kind of teaching that he has in mind, and it's an authoritative teaching, an authoritative one. Here, it means weighing in on prophecies, which is a responsibility reserved for church authority, which is men. Okay. I would think up to this point, John MacArthur might agree with about 98% of what I said so far. I think from, then, from this point on, we might split a little bit because what is authoritative teaching today, right? In a little bit of a gray area, just to be totally honest with you, right? I think the closest thing we have to authoritative teaching today in 2019 is a Sunday morning sermon. This, what I'm doing right now, is I'm guarding doctrine and contending for the faith with you in an authoritative manner. I think it would be this. 
we intuitively know this, don't we? I mean, if you go and get, if, if you visit another church and you walk in a little bit late and you see a guy or a gal up there doing what I'm doing right now, contending, extending, guarding, professing, teaching, you're just going to assume that's the person in charge. People that don't even love Jesus, it's true for them. Bringing anyone off the street and ask them who's in charge, they will see the person up there talking. It is seen in our culture and historically as the authoritative position. The challenge for us, again, if we're going to be honest, is the Sunday sermon is not defined in the Bible. We, we don't have any evidence in the New Testament of this little 90-minute thing we do every Sunday, right? Where I come up for 42 or 48 minutes, and I do the best I can to extend a passage to you while a team comes up and gives four songs. There's nothing in the Bible that shows us that, right? In fact, in our passage today, we see an application where there's multiple players coming up and exhibiting a gift that God has given them through the Spirit, which is why we bring as many people up, different women and men, to minister to you on a Sunday morning. Yet the sermon is vital to Legacy Church. In fact, I'm going to say it's the corner piece of what we do on Sunday mornings, is the sermon in this large gathering. Jesus does command that we teach all that he has commanded, and Paul tells us to preach the word. So in our society today, culturally and historically, this occurs heavily on Sunday mornings, okay? Even those, like I said, far from Jesus know this much. That's why if they're out there, if anyone wakes up from a bender and they're like, man, what am I doing? I need to get my life right. Where do they go for authoritative truth? We're still in the deep south. I don't know how much longer it's going to be like this, but they would go to a church on Sunday morning, right? So according to how we read the Bible, we only reserve the authoritative teaching of a Sunday sermon and pastoral leadership to men. We feel this honors Christ. We feel this honors women. We feel this works as a compliment to women as they work as a compliment to us. We feel that we honor God, all of it at the same time. But throughout history, God has raised up women who are powerfully gifted both in teaching and in prophecy. And I believe he's not done. And I pray that he does it in this congregation. And while these women might not lead a church as a pastor or preach a sermon, their public ministry should be encouraged, encouraged, equipped, and encouraged. Listen, I know this is a difficult sermon. It's a little bit different than what we normally do. But I got to say, if your insides are fighting a sermon like this, ask yourself why. Why are you bristling if you're bristling? Why? Do you feel restricted, demeaned, lowered? Listen, if submission is difficult, I want you to just be encouraged. Jesus walked a path of greater submission to give you something greater in the form of freedom. That pain you feel in submitting your life, that's a real pain. That, that small death and having to submit or defer to somebody, that's a real thing. That struggle, and it's shared. It's shared with Christ himself. You're not alone when you suffer through that. Jesus is right there saying, yeah, I know what that feels like. I did the same thing for my father. That submission, that deferment, it's a real pain. And let me ask you, what would make you feel better? What would give you total rest? Having no distinctions at all? Having all of your uniqueness pulled away, that wouldn't give you any rest. Can you trust that God's design is better than what society coughs up? 
That the architecture of the gospel and how it endows the womanhood, can you trust that that is better than what the view puts out? Can you trust that? Because listen, if your distinction goes away, ladies, if your distinction goes away, the gospel stops making sense. The gospel's a little fuzzy where it used to be clear. And men, you need to know that you have a role that is not superior to women. And you are to depict the gospel in ways a woman is unable to do. This is a calling God has given you, and it is modeled after the order of creation itself. So go first. Go first. Men hate this. I'm speaking as a men. Men hate this. They hate being lowered. They hate being restricted. In that, they're not much different than a woman, really. They hate sacrificing self for the benefit of another. Bonhoeffer says when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's hard for a guy, just like it is a girl, to come and die. Listen, go first. Go first in your marriage. Go first in placing women before you. Go first in empowering them and equipping them. Go first in creating a space. This is what Jesus did. He did not bristle at laying his preferences down for the beauty and the glory of another. I hope you see there's plenty of room to repent in a passage like this. There's plenty of ways to see Christ more clearly as we have. There's plenty of room to repent. Feminism, as culture gives us, misogyny, I mean, it's in all of us. We swim in the culture. We just pick it up from our dad's, dad's, dad's way of looking at things or however. We pick it up. There's room to repent. There's plenty of room to celebrate too, though. The same gospel that draws us to repentance draws us to celebrate because there is a day coming when sin no longer affects the way we see personhood. In fact, all of that changes, right? There's a day coming where we don't need any more illustrations to show us how beautiful the gospel is. We'll be beholding the gospel with our own naked eyes, which is pretty cool. That every moment you spend in eternity, you have an amplified understanding of grace, beauty, and thoughtfulness. It doesn't plateau in eternity. It escalates. There's a growth curve to how much you love and appreciate Jesus and the gospel in eternity. It's not a plateau. It grows. But until then, we have these pictures and the illustrations today where we submit to each other, we defer to each other, we die. We complement each other. Go ahead and stand. I'm going to pray us out of this sermon. Again, thank you for being patient. I know it's a little longer, but it is a difficult passage. It's not one to just stick your toe in. And listen, I know there are people in here as well that don't, don't even love Jesus. You might not say it that way, but you're searching. You're looking, not quite sure what to make of the Bible or Jesus, and maybe today answered some questions for you, maybe not in the way you want it either. You need to know that you have a value too, and it is not in your gender, nor is it in your competence, but in the ultimate submission of what Jesus has done. That the value that God gives his children is built in the submission of another. <laughs> the submission is baked into this gospel that we preach and extend. So it's important that you know that. 
And if you feel like the Lord is doing something with you today, if you feel like he is changing your heart from the inside out today, calling you to him today, I'd love to talk to you. At some point before you leave, before you hop in your car, I'd love to, I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to pray with you. So let me pray for you, and then we will take communion. We don't take it all at the same time, but during these worship songs, you'll have the freedom to go back. If you are a Christian, we invite you to take of communion today where we have bread and we have juice back there. If you're not a Christian, that's something that we just do as a family, but I would invite you to take Christ, to take the gospel instead and meditate on that as we sing and as we pray. So Father, we thank you for being good to us and for being sweet to us. I thank you for modeling what submission looks like. We don't have to guess on that. We don't have to guess on what submission looks like. You just show us. It looks like Christ, who submitted himself at his cost for the benefit of another. Order brought restriction to him. The order of the gospel. And Father, as we approach difficult passages like this, Lord, let us do so not with an agenda beyond just wanting to see you more clearly. Lord, the only reason passages like this make sense and can cause joy in our hearts is because we see you in it. We see you in it. And here's the best part, Father. This is what I celebrate in the most, is when we botch up something like tongues or prophecy or we botch all these other gifts or we mess up how we interact with the opposite sex, when all of that stuff just kind of slams into a guardrail, so to speak. You look at us and you don't have a, a clipboard with a check mark that you put right next to our name waiting for us to be more lovable before you love us. But your love does not change for us in that moment. That your grace is your favor towards us, totally despite us. And I'm thankful for that because I am full of mistakes. I am full of mistakes. We are a church full of people full of mistakes. And yet, you've cleaned us by your blood so there's no more need for us to clean ourselves to be lovable before you. We love you. We're very thankful. Even for difficult words like this, even for complicated topics like this, we're very thankful. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.